Well, for those who are interested, Blinge and I were still in Florida exactly three years ago. <laughs> How about that? Because uh, it was the Oscars last night, and three years ago, I actually sat and watched them live in the hotel room. Ah, oh, sometimes it's so interesting what I tell you, isn't it? Goodness, I can't have a job getting over it myself. Right. Let's, yeah, let's just pray before we start. Our Father, as we turn to your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit of truth will open it up to us, Lord, and grant us understanding. Lord, that it will change us. Lord, that, that we'll encounter you in it. Lord, that it will really be your powerful word to our hearts, changing our lives. Lord, we, we pray that you'll just show us Jesus in every verse, Lord. Our oh, Father, be with me now as I speak and everyone else as they hear. Because, Lord, we ask it in your name. Amen. Right, okay, James. <clears throat> Having done the... Um, introduction as it were to it uh, last time we can actually turn to the text of the letter now um, and let me say firstly and you'll certainly discover this as we uh, do the ensuing studies that as a letter and unlike uh, most other of the letters in the New Testament um, it, it doesn't readily lend itself to what you might call uh, systematic exposition. And you know what I'm like for being systematic. I mean, I love it, you know, sort of all my albums uh, at home are alphabet, you know, in alphabetical order. And, and I love things being systematic. And most of the Bible is, but the book of James isn't. As you're going to see, it is all over the place. It is, the word I put on it is jerky. And as we go through it, we're going to have to be a little bit jumping all over the place like he is to hold the different trains of thought that he's using together. Um, and, and he tends to be that there'll be a couple of verses about subject A, and, and, and so you're reading, you get two or three verses, and there's a, a, a clearly defined area that he's speaking about and then in the next verse bang you're on something else completely and, and so you read through that and then you read it and then bang you're you're back to where he was before he changed the subject and it's a bit like that okay um and it in fact it's it's laid out in very much the same way as the old testament wisdom books uh, you know now when we come on to do our Bible survey you'll actually see them but the wisdom books like Job and some of the Psalms and Proverbs Ecclesiastes they're, they're books that aren't exactly laid out systematically and uh, James writes very much in in the vein of the the Old Testament wisdom literature and one of the things we're certainly going to see you know is that this letter is Jewish through and through and he writes very much in, in the vein of Jewish wisdom stuff. And uh, so it's very Jewish. Um, but then if you think about it, so are the Gospels. I mean, you know, I mean they're totally Jewish, aren't they? You know, except one, obviously Luke. Luke wrote a Gospel and he was a Gentile. But Paul's letter is very Jewish because he was Jewish. Peter's letters very Jewish. Hebrews, very Jewish. Um, you know, so having said that James goes all over the place, 
you know, the reason isn't actually as simple as saying because it's very Jewish, because, I mean, the whole Bible is very Jewish. So we've got to ask, why is it that, that James is so different? As a letter, his letter is different from the rest of the New Testament, the way it's laid out. Um, if you think about it, the Gospels are history. Um, they're the telling of a story. And, and, of course, if you're telling a story, of course, the Gospels are the biography of Jesus. And if you write a biography of someone, there's going to be a certain amount of systematic outline, because you've got a story, you've got chronological order, all that. So the Gospels um, are reasonably systematic. Uh, Paul, when he writes... Um, I mean, one of the characteristics of Paul... Because all, all the Bible writers have their own characteristics. One of Paul's isn't that he isn't systematic, but that Paul, when he's writing, he gets carried away with himself. And, uh, you know, there are kind of like actual verses in Paul where it's not that he keeps changing the subject, but he's on a particular thought and he's developing the argument. And he gets so carried away that, that he's got to sort of like point A, B, C in the argument. And the argument ends at point F. But he's halfway through point C, and then he brings F in, because he's getting so excited about where he's going. And that's one of Paul's characteristics. And as you go through his stuff, you have to bear that in mind to understand him. Um, I mean, Peter, he wrote fairly systematically. Hebrews, again, fairly systematic, its own foibles. But then those letters were written to explain teachings about this, that, and the other in a systematic way. So most of the letters in the New Testament are actually what you might call doctrinal. They're teaching, they're, you know, they're kind of giving Bible teaching, and so therefore they're developed in a reasonably systematic and logical way. Um, you know, they develop a logically laid out arguments. Um, you know, in the letters you get, you know, of Paul, you know, sort of Peter, etc., etc. I mean, they might be talking about atonement, particularly Paul, or sanctification. They might be covering the second coming. They might be covering church life. They cover how the Old Testament law fits in with grace. They refute wrong teaching, explaining why it's wrong and what the right teaching is. Uh, they give teaching about predestination, the nature of God, etc., etc., etc. So therefore, because they're laying out systematic teaching, they're done systematically. But such isn't the case with James. It rather stands out on its own. And we've got to ask why. Why is the letter of James so different in its layout? And the actual reason is that it's because his objectives in writing his letter are very much more limited than any of the other New Testament writings. As we're going to see, James does not deal with history. He's not interested in telling any kind of historical story. So it's not like the Gospels, it's not like Acts, okay? Um, and in some ways, Revelation, you can put down as history, only that's uh, the accounting of a history that hasn't happened yet, the future. Uh, so it's not like that. But then neither is he interested in systematically laying out various doctrines. So therefore, his letter isn't like Paul's or Peter's, etc., etc. His, his brief, his reason for writing was much more narrow and singular. And his reason for writing, he's interested 
in getting one thing across and one thing only, a very limited aspect, if you like, of the Christian life. And the burden of the letter that he writes is simply this. You're saved, are you? I don't doubt it. So now act saved. That is his only interest and brief, i.e. James is interested solely in Christian ethics. He's not concerned with what we believe. He's not concerned with what we understand. He takes all that for granted. He is interested in dealing purely with the question of how we behave. The letter of James has one single burden. It lays out the way we ought to live as Christians and what God does in our lives in order to bring about that we do live more and more consistently with what we believe as Christians. So it's Christian ethics. You'll find very often with Paul that the approach that he takes in an average letter, there are exceptions, but the kind of the style or the approach that Paul takes is that like in the first chapter or two of what he writes, they'll kind of, he'll be outlining what God has done for us in Christ and you get all this wonderful you know, that we're raised up in heavenly places in Christ Jesus and all this, you know, what Jesus has done and, and who Jesus is and he was God become man and we were one with him in his death, blah, blah, blah. And Paul goes all the way through the theology of it. And then he leads up and the second half of what he writes is, therefore, husbands love your wives, wives submit to your husbands, children obey your parents. So what Paul does is he lays out the truth of what God has done for us what it means that we are saved. And then having laid that out, he then moves on, therefore, in the light of all that, this is how you ought to live. Now that's the approach that Paul takes. It's not that James is practical and Paul is only theoretical. Paul was theoretical and then practical, all right. But James, he misses out the theoretical bit entirely. He's not concerned with that. His only concern is the way we live. So. Therefore, as James writes in this letter, he's not concerned with giving information about past salvation or justification. He's not interested in that. He takes it for granted that his writers know that, that they're justified by faith and, you know, that, that through, through Jesus they've been saved. So past salvation he's not interested in, all right? He takes it for granted they understand that. Neither is he interested in future salvation or glorification. He's not interested in that. He takes it for granted that the people he's writing to know that they're going to be glorified, that one day they're going to be set free, not just from the penalty of sin, but from the power, uh, sorry, the presence of sin. He takes all that for granted. The only thing he is interested in is present salvation or sanctification. He's interested in the question of us being delivered from the power of sin in our lives now. And even then, he's not interested in actually giving the doctrinal outline of what sanctification is. 
You know, he doesn't go into the fact that you died with Jesus on the cross and you've been set free from the body of sin and the new nature has overridden the old nature. He doesn't go into any of that. He takes it for granted that his hearers know all that because they've read all the other letters in the New Testament. The sole concern of James is, how are you doing living it out? Now, can you see what I, you know, when I say that James has a very limited brief? And that is why his letter is different from most of the other writings in the New Testament. He takes it for granted that the Christians reading the letter, because it was written to Christians, he takes it for granted that those who are reading him understand what God has worked into them. He takes it for granted that they understand that that in Christ we have a new nature, Jesus lives in us. He takes that for granted that we know that and understand that. He's concerned purely, not with what God has worked into us, he's concerned purely with the question, how are you doing working it out? Or the phrase that Paul would have used in Philippians is working out your own salvation. That is what James is interested in. That is the purpose of the letter. How we live. It's the touchstone of, right, you're saved? Brilliant. But are you acting saved? That is the burden. And uh, kind of, in chapter 1, he, he, he lays out, as we're going to see, a kind of an overview of the areas that he's going to develop in greater detail in the rest of the letter. So chapter one is a little bit like an index. You get kind of a foretaste of the kind of subjects. I mean, chapter one is all over the place. But it gives you a, a taste of the things that he's, he's going to deal with in more detail later. And the key, I think, to really getting hold of what I'm saying here, and the key to understanding what the burden of the letter of James is all about, is actually um, that the last two verses of chapter 1. Um, now, we won't actually get to these two verses tonight. We'll get to them next time. Because these are really in-depth studies, you see. But, just to show you, if we just read together... I have lost... I found him, suddenly found James again. If we read uh, chapter 1 and verse 26 and 27, it will, I think, crystallise what... I've been trying to say about the burden of James. Listen to this. If anyone thinks he is religious, now this isn't, um, this isn't James talking about being religious as opposed to being Christian. He's using the word religious here in its purest sense, all right? You know, if anyone thinks he's a Christian, all right, you know, um, and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this man's religion is in vain. And we're going to be seeing that James, when he says things like that, he's not saying it means you're lost or anything like that. I mean, if, if you're born again, you're born again. But we're going to be seeing that James is saying things like, if this is true of you, then you have no discipleship. You're kidding yourself. There's no value in it. You're saved. Brilliant. But he's not concerned. He takes it for granted. His readers are saved. He's concerned with, are they acting saved? So therefore, he says, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this man's religion is vain. Saying your discipleship, if you're not bridling your tongue, your discipleship is futile. Religion, 
i.e. genuine discipleship, religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, does that give you the burden of the book of James? If we really want to find out if our discipleship is genuine, these are the areas we've got to look at. Things like the tongue. What is our speech life like? Um, things like, uh, you know, I, I mean, uh, sort of orphans and widows in the ancient world represented the class of people who were unrepresented and uncared for. Because in the ancient world, it was the man who was the head of the house and was, was the potential earner. A woman couldn't do it and children couldn't. So a widow was without her man, her husband. She was dead in the water. An orphan was without a father. They were dead in the water. The, I, they had no one to care for them. So widows and orphans in the Bible simply represent any class of people with whom we have to do who need to be taken care of, who need to be looked after. So that's the area also that we've got to look at. Like, you know, practical sharing, serving people, giving, that whole kind of thing. And you see, visiting orphans and widows, whatever the equivalent is in any particular instance, because after all, Individual churches today might not know any widows and orphans. And you might know widows and orphans nowadays who have got more friends and are better cared for than you are. Because it's a different society. But the question is, how are we with those who we do know who need to taking care of? That is the acid test. And then he says, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. A life of personal holiness. Um, notice, no mention here of how's, how's the soul winning going, brother. Now, James is not against evangelism, not in the slightest. But that's not what he's concerned about. No mention here of the gifts of the Spirit. Now, James is not against the gifts of the Spirit. Well, in actual fact, we will see at the end, he deals with healing. But that's not the burden, that he's not saying anything against it, but he's saying the real thing we're dealing with here are the practicalities of how you live day by day. Now, can you see that burden of the letter? These are the tests, these are the areas that we're going to be looking at. And as we go through the letter, the kind of the subjects that we're going to be looking at, I mean, if one was studying a letter of Paul, one might say, well, you know, we'll be looking at election and predestination, we'll be looking at atonement, We'll be looking at redemption, we'll be looking at the second coming, blah, blah, blah. But with James, the subjects we're going to be dealing with, for instance, are the tongue, wisdom, and biblically, wisdom is not philosophizing. In the world sense, you know, I mean, sort of people who are wise, in the world's eyes, it just tends to be intellectual ideas. In the Bible, wisdom has got nothing to do with your mental capacity. Wisdom is purely to do with how you live. You see what I mean? So we're going to be dealing with wisdom, or James does. We'll be dealing with prejudice. 
James deals with that. He deals with money and giving. He deals with the testing of faith, the trials and tribulations we have to go through in order for God to get us to the point where we can be living the Christian life. Because very often, as we're going to see, we don't just, oh, I think I'll turn away from myself in this area of my life. I mean, in some areas we do, but in other areas, God has to, you know, virtually take that area of life away from us. So it's, it's, when it's virtually gone, then we're able to turn away from it and, and seek Him in it. So we're going to be dealing with that. James deals with anger. He deals with patience. And, and he deals with prayer. And, and he deals with arrogance, etc., etc., etc. So the kind of stuff we're going to be looking at here is practical in the extreme. So I hope that's given you the idea of the, you know, the waters that, that we're sailing into here. Now, it doesn't mean in the slightest that there's anything wrong in the theory, understanding, redemption, sanctification, nothing wrong with that at all. But James takes for granted that they know that, you know, same read Paul's letters and Peter's letters, blah, blah, blah. That's not his burden. His burden is simply Christian ethics. It's kind of, right, you're saved. I don't doubt it. Praise the Lord, you're saved. Wonderful, you're reading this letter, so I suppose you've got to be, or why would you be reading the letter? You're saved, brilliant. But are you acting saved? That is the burden that James has. Right, so, so with that under our belts, we, we can now actually proceed into the text itself. So let's um, actually start with, um, well, let's start with verse 1, shall we? Because <laughs> let, let's keep it as systematic as we can. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greeting. Now, when they wrote letters in the ancient world, and this is rather sensible if you think about it, they started the letter off with who it was from. I mean, very often if you get a letter, the first thing you do is you look at the end of the letter to see who it's from. If you don't recognise the writing. So it's a bit daft, isn't it? We start our letters, dear so-and-so, and then we tell them at the end who it's from. Well, what the Jews did is they said, you know, hi, it's me. <laughs> so it's dear so-and-so, love from Beresford, and then you get the letter. You know, so right at the start, they know who it is. So he, he, he says who he is, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't here say, I'm Jesus' brother, as we saw last time he was, or half-brother. He doesn't say that because that could have been misunderstood. You know, he could have thought that he was trying to claim some kind of authority simply by virtue of being the Lord's brother. He doesn't do that, but everyone knew he was the Lord's brother. You know, you know so that was neither here nor there, but he simply says, Hi, James here, lads. Um, and the lads concerned are the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Now, the dispersion was basically... Jews who lived anywhere outside Israel. And at the time of Jesus and the early church, there were many, many, many who did. I mean, remember that, that, that 400 years before the time of Jesus, um, Israel had been carted off into Babylonian captivity. No, sorry, 500 years before. Then, 100 years later, like, you know, sort of some of them start to come back and, and, and the land is re-established. But by then, there were Jews living all over the then known world. 
and you can read um, in the Acts as well that, that, that many of the Jews who got converted eventually got forced out of Israel you know, through persecution. So then there were even more. But this term dispersion simply referred to any Jew who didn't live in the Promised Land. So it's addressed to Jews who weren't in Israel. And obviously it was addressed to Jews who had become Christians who didn't live in Israel. The ones who lived in Israel, okay, they were getting their teaching, you know, I mean, perhaps from James. He was in Jerusalem, he'd have travelled around Israel a bit, I suppose. But this letter is, you know, in the same way that Romans was Paul writing to Christians he'd never met. So this is James writing to Jewish Christians that he had never met. So it's addressed specifically to Jewish Christians, but obviously it is equally applicable to us even though we're Gentiles. Right, now, now let's actually read verse 2 to 4. He says, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, he dives straight in here, no, you know, no messing about, you know, straight down to brass tacks. He's, he's right in at the deep end. And what he starts off by saying here is, look, I want you to realise that, that trials and difficulties, all the hard times you're going through as Christians, they're to be rejoiced in. Rejoice, be glad for all the hard times you're going through. And the reason for that is because they test our faith. Now, let's, let's do some Greek here, all right? We'll see the trials themselves in a minute. But James says, look, these difficulties you go through, they test your faith. What does that mean? The Greek word here that he used, you know, sort of like for testing, the testing of your faith, is dokimion. And in the Greek, it refers specifically to the testing of precious metals. Now, a dokimion, which is a Greek word obviously directly related, was a crucible. And what the crucible was, it was, you know, kind of like a big bowl, I suppose. And if you had metal, you know, sort of precious gold or silver or whatever, obviously the more pure it is, the more valuable it is. So if you had a, a, a jeweller or something like that, he wants to make the gold, you know, his earrings or whatever, out of really pure gold. Because gold or silver or what have you has got loads of impurities. There's a mixture in there. There's the gold in there, but also there's all the muck, the stuff that isn't gold. Now, how they purified it was they shoved it in a crucible. The crucible was heated up to intense heat. You know, and heat equals pressure. And what would happen was it would melt. It gets so hot that the metal would melt. And then what would happen was that all the muck, all the impurities, would bubble up and they would float on the surface. And that was called dross. And therefore, whilst it was molten, you know, the fire's going, the heat's up, the pressure's on, as the metal was molten, 
the dross could be skimmed off. And the result was then that when the metal cooled down, it was more pure than it was before it was put in the crucible. Now, that's the idea of testing, all right. It's the Lord putting us in the furnace of trials and difficulties. And the idea being that, I mean, you know, there's, there's gold. You know, there is gold in them that are Christians, all right. And the gold is the life of Jesus, the new nature we have. But what's the dross? Well, the dross is the old nature. Now, what the Lord does is that through all the difficulties and the hard times, because you only find out what your heart is really like, not when things are going your way, because we're all Mr. Nice Guy, we're all Mr. Christian when things are going our way, but when things aren't going our way, then we find out what's in our hearts. And of course, the difficult times, they all, all the sin, all the muck floats up and it usually comes out of our mouth, doesn't it? And it shows on the expression on our faith, face or whatever. But the point is that all the dross, all the sin is revealed. And once it's revealed, we can bring it before the Lord and then the Lord can skim it off. The result is that after each kind of phase of that, in whatever way the Lord does it, it's less of us more of Jesus, less dross, more gold. Because remember what John the Baptist said, he must increase, speaking of Jesus, but I must decrease. And that's exactly what testing, what the crucible is all about, okay? So, the trials and testings of our faith, we're to rejoice in them, all right, these hard times, because it's those things that are largely doing this work of sanctification in us. They're part of the process of us being delivered from the power of sin in our lives, because it reveals the sin, we know it's there, and we can get it dealt with by the Lord. So what we've got to ask now is, okay, so, so, so the, these trials and that, what, what exactly are they? What, what are the trials that test our faith, that, that kind of shove us in the crucible? Because he says, the testing of your faith, but he says, count it all joy when you meet various trials. And it's these trials that constitute the testing of our faith. So what are the trials? We've seen the Greek for testing, now we've got to see the Greek for actual, this word, trials. And the Greek word here that he uses is pirasmos. And it means two things. It means firstly, a difficulty of whatever sort. So, that's a very wide meaning of the Greek word. And then secondly, it means specifically temptation to sin. Temptation to be in a situation where you are considering doing that which you know to be wrong. So that's the two meanings of this word trial. A difficulty of any sort or, because it has two meanings, a temptation to sin. Now, when interpreting or trying to understand, you know, sort of like the Bible or any book written in a language that isn't your own, um, when you've got a word that has two distinct meanings, well, this could happen in English as well, when you've got a word that's got two distinct meanings, it's the context of the word's usage at that point that will give you the clue as to which meaning you're supposed to use, whether it's one meaning or the other or both at the same time. And, uh, and here I suggest, and you'll see why a little bit later, that James is using this word in, in both senses. He, he's using this word in its widest possible context. Anything that constitutes a difficulty equals a trial from the Lord. 
And then he widens it out, and any temptation to sin equals a trial of the Lord. Both those things are what constitute the testing of our faith. And I think that what he's saying here is it's talking about that with the difficulties that we land up in as a result of following the Lord, so there you've got the difficulty. All of the difficulties that we end up in as we follow the Lord, each comes with a whole host of temptations to sin. Because in any difficult situation you're in, you've always got two choices. You can do the Lord's will or your own. And there's a million temptations in every situation to do the sinful thing rather than the right thing. So that, I think, is, is, is what James is meaning. So what we've got here is that the, the trials that he's talking about is, is sort of like the difficulties with all their resultant temptations to sin which come upon us sent by the Lord in order to test our faith. Can you see what I mean? So all the time as we're following the Lord, okay, all the difficulties that that entails and all the temptations to sin that that entails, all that together constitutes the trials which test our faith that James here says, welcome them. Don't be put off by them, welcome them, because they are doing the work of sanctification in your life. They are what is keeping you or putting you in the, the cauldron, the crucible, and they are the fire that is keeping that heart melted, or whatever, so that God can skim all the rubbish off the top. All right. So, what you've got here is that James is saying you've got difficulties and temptations to sin, all right, um, which are God-sent trials. So what we've got here is God-sent pierasmos trials, which are the means whereby God refines our faith, brings us to maturity in the Lord. And he says, rejoice in them, all right, because uh, they're tremendously important. They're God doing a work in you. Now, what we've got to do now, because when you get to verse 5, if you read verse 5, he starts talking about wisdom, and he does one of his jumps. All right? He does a jump. He drops into hyperspace, out of the universe as we know it, and appears instantaneously the other side of the universe. Can you see? Um, you know, that's the kind Well, if you read Asimov, he'll explain it to you. So he does one of them. So he goes right off the subject, and so we've got to jump with him, all right, we're we'll drop into hyperspace and we've got to follow him through and we come out at verse 12. All right, so we're going to miss a load of verses out. We'll be back to them in a minute, all right, because it's him jumping all over the place. I said it was jerky. Don't blame me, it's not my fault. He wrote it, not me. All right, so now we move on to verse 12 because he keeps the same subject going. He's had a digression, he moves back to it. All right, so in verse 12, okay, let's, let's read this. He says, Blessed is the man who endures trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. All right. So, um, you know, sort of like here, you know, he, he, he talks about the test, when he, when he has stood the test. Well, that word is dokimos. It's kind of the same as dokimian that we saw early. All right. And, and he says, endures trial. Well, that's pierasmos again, the same, the same Greek word as we've already seen. All right. 
So, you know, what we've got here in verse 12 is that verses 2 to 3 are dealing with a subject and verse 12 he returns and continues with the same subject. Alright, so let's read verses 13 to 15 now. Because he's back on the subject of God testing us with trials. Pierasmos. And he goes on to say, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Now, we hit up with a problem here. The problem is obscured in the English translation, but it's there in the Greek. And because I'm not one to dodge problems, uh, you know, we've, we've, we've got to face it. Because in verses 2 to 3, and then in verse 12, he's using the word trial. And we've seen that that is pirasmos, isn't it? And here, we now get the word tempt. Now, in English, a trial and a temptation are totally different things, aren't they? But the point is, here, it's piradsu, the word tempt, which is basically the same as pirasmos, which we've already seen. So, the point is, we've seen in verses 2 to 3, that God will send even temptations to sin, which are part of pirasmos, you face difficulties in following the Lord, and with those difficulties come temptations to sin. And they are God-sent to test our faith. And yet now, in verse 13, he says, Let no one say when they're tempted, I'm tempted of God. But in verses 2 to 3, he said, When you're facing those kind of temptations, they're sent by God to test you. Now, can you see, this problem doesn't arise when you read the English translations, but in the Greek, there's a problem. He seems, in the space of a few verses, to totally contradict himself. On the one hand, in verses 2 to 3, he says, among the difficulties, the testings, the trials that God sends in order to sanctify you, among them are temptations to sin, which come as a result of you following the Lord. All right? So, verses 2 to 3 tell us that temptation to sin is part of God's testing. It comes from the Lord himself. Here, he says, if you're tempted to sin, that is not from the Lord and you mustn't say it is. So, what on earth are we dealing with here? Okay. So, we've, we've got to kind of, you know, sort, sort this out. Alright. On the one hand, he's saying temptations to sin can come from the Lord. And then he goes on to more or less say, temptation doesn't come from the Lord. So, which is which? Now, the answer to this is that if we're dealing with the question of temptations to sin, i.e. being in a situation where a, an opportunity to sin really presents itself to you, all right, in that circumstance, there are two different sorts. There are two completely different ways in which that can happen. Alright, now let's, let's try and bring this out. Firstly, we've seen that God puts us through difficulties to test us, 
to refine us. And with those difficulties will come all kinds of temptations to sin. Because in any situation God leads us into, there's the right thing to do and the wrong thing to do. So there's temptations to sin that come as a result of us faithfully following the Lord. All right? That's the first category. But there is another category. Because there are secondly a completely different type of difficulties and temptations that we can end up facing which are definitely not sent by the Lord at all but which arise only as a result of our own sin and actually getting out of God's will. So what we're seeing there are the, the, tempta the difficulties and the temptations to sin that we face as a result of being in God's will. But there is another category of difficulties and temptations to sin which arise precisely because we are now out of God's will. Can you see the difference? And those difficulties and temptations originate not from the Lord at all to test us, but they originate from our own sinful nature and are nothing to do with the Lord at all. Now, I can perhaps bring this out if, if I give you examples, all right. Now then, let's, let's, let's take example one, okay, say day-to-day -day life at work, all right. Now then, you can end up being given a really hard time by people at work because of your allegiance to the Lord, all right. So, maybe workmates are giving you a hard time and it's persecution. They're reacting badly against you and they're being rotten to you or whatever. And the reason is, it's their reaction against your godliness. It's their reaction against your discipleship. Your walk with the Lord is, in those circumstances, convicting the unbelievers and they're reacting badly. That is persecution. Now then, when that happens, you will face temptations to resent them. Can you see what I mean? It's God testing you. Because the fact that they're giving you a hard time, that humbles us, doesn't it? It teaches us not to fear man, all part of the sanctifying process. But you'll be tempted to resent them. You'll be tempted not to forgive them when they're horrible to you. Maybe you hear the latest rumour about yourself, the, nasty, you know, the latest nasty thing they're saying about you behind your back. And when you hear that, you'll be tempted to resent them. Now, there you have a temptation that is being presented to you as a result of your faithfulness to the Lord. Okay. So, there's a difficulty sent by the Lord with a resultant temptation. All right, And it was your obedience to the Lord being a faithful witness at work, that has led these people to be having a go at you. So, it's your obedience to the Lord that has led you into that situation. And that's okay, no problem at all. That is God working. So you're faithful to the Lord at work, people have a go at you, reject you, persecute you or whatever, you're going to be tempted to resent them, for instance. But that is a temptation that has come from the Lord because it's resulted in your faithfulness to the Lord. Okay? Right. Category one, Pirasmos that's sent from the Lord.
But just supposing you're being given a bad time at work, all right, and maybe people being horrible to you, mouthing off at you, or whatever, okay. But let's suppose now that it's not, in fact, anything to do with the fact that you're a Christian. It might be to do with the fact that you're impossible to get on with, that you're spiky, that you're a pain in the neck to everyone, that you moan all the time. There, you've got people not liking you, not because you're following the Lord, but because you're not being a very likable person. So, when you are tempted to resent them because they're being horrible to you, can you see, far from facing a temptation to sin that has come as a result of your faithfulness to the Lord, you're simply facing the consequences of your own sin. Now, can you see the difference there? Can you see that distinction? It's one thing to have people, perhaps being horrible to me, purely because I'm following the Lord. All right, if that happens, I'm going to be tempted to react back. That's one thing. But it's also on the cards that someone could end up being treated like that, but not because they're faithful to the Lord at all. It's not persecution. But their own sin is so getting on everyone's nerves, they're just not liked. Now, the point is, in both instances, you're facing a bad reaction from other people and you're facing the temptation to resent them or not forgive them. But in one instance, you're facing it because you're being faithful to the Lord. In the other instance, you're facing exactly the same thing, but because you're not being faithful to the Lord. So, there's facing temptation that results from our faithfulness to the Lord, and there is facing temptation and difficulties that are in fact a result of our own stupidity and our own sin. Now, the former, the former, James says, is sent by God. The latter, you must not say, is sent by God at all. Can you see? Because if people are being horrible to me, because I'm quite frankly not a very likable person, and it's my sin that is affecting them that way, then what I say is, that isn't God testing me, all right? That, that is me revealing myself for what I am and simply suffering the consequences. Now, God will use it because God uses everything. But that situation doesn't arise from God himself. But a situation where, i.e., people might not, you know, be against me because I'm faithful to the Lord, that is sent by the Lord. But if people are against me because I'm the sort of person that you couldn't really be for, because of my own sin, then that is not something where I can say that is God doing it, because it isn't. That is me suffering the consequences of my own sin and stupidity. Another example, alright, if God appoints you, for instance, to leadership in a church and you become an elder or a Bible teacher or whatever, if God appoints you to leadership, then believe you me, you will face a million temptations to sin as a result of being an elder. Of course you will. You will face a million difficulties as a result of being an elder. And every difficulty will give you a myriad of opportunities to respond sinfully. Alright? So there's temptation to sin. But all that is because God has appointed you to leadership and you're in God's will. And all those difficulties, all those temptations to sin, 
you know, like the temptation to pride, arrogance, you name it, all them are God sent to do a work in you, alright? But now, let's picture someone who ends up in leadership, not because God has appointed them, but because they've pushed themselves into leadership. You see the difference? Example one, God appoints you to leadership, you're in God's will. But if you get someone who, for instance, asserts themselves and get into leadership because they've got a strong character, blah, 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 and a church is stupid enough to let them be a leader, well, that person's out of God's will. They will face a thousand difficulties with their resultant temptations as a result of being in that position. But they're out of God's will. The difficulties that they will then face is not God testing them because they're not in God's will. The difficulties they then face are simply the result of their own silliness in being in a position they're not meant to be in. <laughs> Alright. I mean, are you actually seeing the principle here? Or, think of it another one. You know, so one here, you know, sort of, you know, say for single lads and lasses, alright. Being sexually tempted, well, no, this applies to us married people as well. Facing sexual temptation in the normal course of events is quite natural and God will use it to test us, see if we're faithful. But some Christians lay themselves open to sexual temptation that they needn't ever face because they're not obeying the Bible's advice of flee fornication. So can you see, in the normal course of events a Christian might face sexual temptation, obviously. <coughs> but another Christian could end up facing sexual temptation as a result of, of, of the fact that they're not fleeing fornication. Alright, so the point is, um, you know, that there are these two things. There's the difficulties and temptations that come as a result of being in God's will, but there are the difficulties and the temptations which come precisely as a result of not being in God's will. And it is these latter ones that he's talking about when he says, let no one say when he is tempted that he is tempted of God, because that's not true. And what he says, because you know, he says that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And I mean, the point is, even, even when we face difficulties and temptations as a result of being in God's will, the point is, if we sin, it is purely our own fault anyway. I mean, we can never ever push our sin and blame it onto God or the devil or someone else, alright? We can never excuse our sin by kind of pushing the responsibility onto God. Well, it's, like, well, it's God testing me, that's why I sinned. The whole point of God testing us was so that we didn't sin, not so that we did. You know, and James is making very clear here that we could, you know, to that extent, God never tempts people to sin. It is never God's will that we actually sin. I mean, let me try and bring this out even more, because it is important. Say, for instance, all right, say you've got a single bloke or a single girl or whatever, and say the Lord brings along your partner, so you're now courting or maybe you're engaged and marriage is looming, all right. Now, absolutely right, God's will, wonderful, beautiful, all right. In that situation, you will obviously face sexual temptation. No question about it. But God brought the partner along. You see? So, it's kind of, 
that temptation is a secondary thing to the fact that it's God's will, okay? And in effect, what God says is, right, I've given them a partner, they're going to get married, now there's temptation in the thing, will they pass the test? But it's God who's put you in that situation. No problem, okay, that is God testing you. But what God won't do is lead you into a situation where you're lying on the sofa in a darkened room, half undressed, and, uh, you know, and, and, and then God's saying, right, but will they be able to resist the temptation now? <laughs> you see, God will never, ever put you in that situation. You got yourself into that situation, not the Lord. That wasn't the Lord leading you into it. So you can't say that it was a test, because it isn't. That's the result of our own stupidity, all right? The Bible says flee fornication. We're never to get into a situation where temptation in that way presents itself. And of course, here's the thing. The great temptation is that we can try and excuse being in category two, purely our own sin, purely being out of God's will, i.e. sinning, being out of God's will. We can try and almost throw up a smokescreen by thinking about it as if it's category one. You know, sort of somehow the result that I ended up sleeping with him or her was because, of course, it was God testing us. And, and it's wrong that we did it, but it was God testing us. Now, the point is, if, say, you're lying in a darkened room half undressed, you're asking for it, you cannot say that is God testing you. Now, can you see the point? In effect, what we've got here is true and false testing. And as we go through this letter, we're going to see that James, he's got a list of things, and he says there's a true and a false. There's a spiritual and a, you know, and a, a counterfeit. There's a genuine and there's a carnal. And this is one of the things he deals with. And the point is, Christians can end up in situations where they're out of God's will, and what, you know, the difficulties and that they're going through are because they're out of God's will, and yet they're talking about it as if it's the sanctifying difficulties of being in God's will. It's not. It's, 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 just, it's just experiencing the results of our own folly, because we're out of God's will. And, you know, so, big question, can we expect grace to endure circumstances? that God didn't lead us into? And the answer is no. And sometimes, in particular areas where believers, they just don't seem to get the grace to overcome that difficulty, perhaps they're out of God's will somewhere, and God isn't making the grace available. Can you see the point? They're out of God's will, but they're talking about it as if it's God testing them and sanctifying them, assuming they are in God's will. Can you see that difference? It is tremendously important, okay. But we've got to go back now to what Paul, you know, to what James says about testing our faith and now we're back to the genuine you know when it's the trials that are the result of being in God's will not the result you know of being out of God's will and we've got to ask what exactly is it that they're supposed to do what is the effect of this testing and uh, back to verse um, three and four, he says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That's the result, that is the fruit 
of God's genuine testing in our lives. And he says, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, this, this kind of, when he talks about steadfastness, that testing produces steadfastness or, or patience or endurance, whatever word you like, the Greek word is hupomene, and it means an abiding under. And what steadfastness is, is when you, you're in a situation where God's testing and all the difficulties of life, all the, the hardships, the difficulties of being in God's will, all right, you've got two choices, haven't you? We can kick against it and moan and I don't like this and this isn't fair and blah, blah, you know, Lord, why aren't you sympathising with me? We can, we can take that approach or we can say, Lord, this is your will for me. I'm going to peacefully abide in what you're doing so it can have its work in me. You see? And that is the steadfastness. And the point is, okay, that if you're in a, you know, if you're getting a hammering, well, no, say you're getting taps, all right? The Lord's tapping your head in testing, all right? Kick against it, all right? All you like, and it will become a hammering. Because God's going to have you abide under it. And it will keep you there until you're abiding in peace in that situation. Can you see? So the point is that what God is, is, is after is, is that kind of patience, that abiding under, when our main thought isn't, oh, this is difficult, but our main thought is, well, this is God's will, and I have his grace to be able to endure it. No problem. That is Christian maturity. Now, if you just flick over to, to Romans chapter 5, and we'll, we'll just, you know, Paul develops exactly this, this same thought um, a little bit further. Um, Romans chapter 5 and uh, verse, verse 3 and 4. And uh, it's exactly the same theme that James is on. And Paul says, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. So there you have it, the trials, the difficulties of following the Lord. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. Alright, now that's your kind of your steadfastness that James is talking about, alright? But look what Paul says, and he says, an endurance produces character. Now can you see that? And character, that is the forming of the new nature in us. That is the very character, the very life of Jesus himself. So what you've got here is that all the difficulties that we go through, if we learn to abide in them, rather than kicking against them, to let God have his way, then in that enduring, in that patience, we will find it's there that, that the character of Jesus, that the new nature is being formed in us. That, ultimately, is what sanctification is all about. And then James goes on to say, you know, that it might be, have its full effect, that you might be perfect and complete. Now, when he talks about being perfect, because here he's talking about Christian maturity, and this word perfect in the Greek, it's teleos, and it doesn't mean moral, you know, sort of morally perfect, it doesn't mean sinless, it's not what it means at all. The actual word teleos means to reach the end of a thing, alright, that's what it means, and it's talking about maturity, about the character of Jesus being fully formed in us. It's talking about growth. 
maturing in the Lord and it's these difficulties that are doing that and then when he talks about being complete um, you know the Greek word there is holokleros uh, we get the word holistic you know holistic medicine you know everything's holistic in the new age it comes from this world here and it means to be sound in every part and of course the problem with the new age it's not their holistic you know that concept it's the fact that so much of what you know these holistic things they're into are occultic but it's talking here to be sound in every part the fullness of our new nature the fullness of Jesus manifesting himself in us in every way and of course the point is that this testing and obviously it's over years because endurance it presupposes time I mean James isn't into instant sanctification it's, it's, it's the result of years and years of God working in us. But the point is that this testing that God puts us through, it shows us our sinfulness. It shows us our weakness. It shows us our absolute dependence on the Lord. Because we can have all manner of self-confidence. And so God brings along circumstances where they're just too much for us. And our self-confidence just breaks. We realise we haven't got it in us. And it's only there when difficulties bring us to the end of ourselves that there we can find the beginning of Jesus living through us. So this testing, these trials, these temptations, over the years they break us of self. They break us. They throw us more and more onto Jesus. That, that he lives his life through us. And that is what the testings are all about. And that is why James says, look, rejoice in them. He says, be careful, there are genuine ones and there are counterfeit ones, and you mustn't, muck, you, know, you mustn't mix them up in your mind, because you can end up trying to justify being out of God's will, and you mustn't do that. But he says, nevertheless, with genuine testings and the temptations that come as a result, because after all, Peter, he stepped out of the boat, didn't he? Now Jesus called him to, so Peter, he did right. And when he stepped out of the boat, he faced a temptation that the other disciples didn't, the temptation to look away and sink. And indeed, he committed the sin. But the point is, that was far more valuable than the disciples who remained in the boat. Can you see what I mean? Because there are sins that you will only face as you really step out of the boat with Jesus. We needn't be afraid of that. The Lord's grace covers it all. Right, okay, testing. Now we've got to go back to, to the verses that, that we skipped, although it's all very much of a muchness. It's all very much on the same thing. But verse 5, where he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all men generously and without reproaching, and it will be given him. So here we're talking about wisdom. Um, we're not here talking about the word of wisdom. We're not here, you know, here talking about the spiritual gift. That's entirely separate. But here, wisdom, what is it biblically? Well, wisdom is the application of knowledge. Uh, in the Western world today, wisdom can just be theorizing. But it wasn't that to the Jewish mind. Wisdom was the application of knowledge. Uh, and that is what this letter is all about. Not theory, but practice. Not what you believe, but what you actually live out. 
That is what wisdom is all about. And the equivalent Old Testament book to James, because some of the New Testament books, they actually have counterparts in the Old Testament. Like Ephesians has as its counterpart Joshua. See, spiritual warfare, the taking of the land. Um, Revelation has as its counterpart the book of Daniel, because they interpret each other. And the counterpart in the Old Testament to James is Proverbs. And Proverbs was concerned with what? Wisdom. And as you read through Proverbs, what is it all about? It's telling you that you can act like a fool or you can act like the Lord wants you to. You see, you can live sinfully or you can live in a holy way. That is what this is all about, okay? So here, he says, look, if you lack wisdom, if, if your life is all wrong, okay, if, if you feel you're not growing, and this applies to all of us, we all lack wisdom, he says, right, ask of God. Ask the Lord. Say, Lord, I need more of you. I need more holiness. I, I need more of everything you are. I, ne I need absolutely more of everything, all right? And, um, you know, and he sort of says, says as well, um, you know, that sort of like, you know, that, that God will answer that prayer. No question. If you ask that prayer, God will answer it. And in effect, what are you praying for? If you pray for wisdom in this context, what is the prayer? Yeah, it's Lord, give me wisdom, and God will answer that prayer. But in effect, it's Lord, sort me out. Lord, do what is ever needed in me to get me living right. That, that's what the prayer is. And of course he says, look, and, and God will, will answer that prayer, who gives to all men generously and without reproaching. Now why does it say without reproaching? Well, it's for a simple reason. If you need to ask God for wisdom, it presupposes that you don't have it. Gizzi. So therefore, only an idiot asks for wisdom, and before God we're idiots. And the reason it says that God doesn't reproach is that when we say, Lord, give me more wisdom, he doesn't say, why, are you some kind of idiot? Mm -hmm. You know, you see, that, that's why James puts this in. God is delighted to answer that prayer, because he knows our frame, he remembers we're dust. So the point is that when we come to Lord saying, Lord, I am so desperately sinful, I need more of your holiness, the Lord doesn't, you know, kind of slap us round the room for being so sinful. He says, wonderful, and I'm going to provide all the grace you need for that prayer to be answered. Right. Now then, so therefore, what we're seeing here is, right, Lord, sort me out, okay? I need sorting out, and God will answer that prayer. But in verse 6, there is a proviso, look, and he says, For let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, will receive anything from the Lord. Okay. Now then, we're going to see that in the same way that James has already dealt with true and false testing, we're going to be seeing in later studies that he's also going to deal with true and false faith. Genuine faith and counterfeit faith. All right. Um, and what he deals with here is that when we're praying, when we're asking, when we're seeking for God to, to work in us and to do his will in us, then the point is we mustn't do that with doubts. You see, 
To doubt God's declared word is to call him a liar. And God says, do it without doubting. To doubt is to call God a liar. Now, he's talking about praying for wisdom. He's talking about praying, Lord, deal with me. Sort my life out. Sanctify me. That's what the prayer for wisdom is in effect saying. And what James is saying here, look, have no doubts about it. God does want to sort you out. Do not doubt it. God wants to answer that prayer. If you don't settle in your heart that that is what God wants, you're going to be all over the place. Because one will then end up one of these people who is always saying, oh Lord, deal with me, deal with me, deal with me. Twenty years later, they're still saying deal with me, but they're not dealt with. Can you see the problem? There are many Christians like that. Many, many Christians like that. I know there are times when there can be areas of our life where maybe years later we're still crying out. But I'm talking about Christians who, they never get broken. They're all the time crying out that God will do it, but it never happens. And one of the reasons is because there's all this doubting, all this double-mindedness, all right. And uh, you know, the point is that, that, that as genuine trust in the Lord grows, stability grows with it. And, and part of being mature in the Lord is, is being stable. And the thing is that this double-mindedness that James here says, look, you've got to make sure that you're not guilty of this. Now, he's talking in the area of praying that God will sanctify us. That's what he's talking about. And he's saying, look, in this area, there must be no double-mindedness. You've got to make your mind up, and then you've got to, you know, to absolutely stick by it. Double-mindedness simply hinders the Lord and prevents him from sanctifying you. Now, that double-mindedness, it works in two ways, all right? Firstly, firstly, it, 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 work, it doubts whether God will actually deal with us. So you've got someone saying, Lord, I want you to deal with me, all right? Well, this double-mindedness doubts whether God really wants to do it. And then secondly, the double-mindedness manifests itself as kind of doubts in yourself whether you actually do want him to deal with you. So you're praying on the one hand, Lord, deal with me, but there's all these reservations underneath because you don't really want him to deal with you. So on the one hand, there's doubting whether he wants to, but on the other hand, there's doubting whether you want to. That, that is the two ways that double-mindedness will just it will kill Christian maturity stone dead. There'll be no growing in the Lord as long as that kind of double-mindedness is there. On the one hand thinking, no, I don't think God really wants to do it. But on the other hand thinking, oh no, I don't think I really want him to do it either. And all the time keeping the back door open so that there's the way of escape. Now, we've got to respond to those two things. And when James says, look, you know, get this sorted out, let there be no double-mindedness. In effect, he's, he's saying what I'm going to say now. Number one, question, does God want to deal with us and mature us? Does God want us to be setting, you know, does he want to be setting us free from the power of sin in our lives? Does he want us to be growing up into maturity in the Lord? Does he or not? Yes or no? Now, settle it in your mind right now, with no doubts whatsoever, 
Yes, he does. Every page of the Bible says he does. He wants us to be holy. And he's provided everything needful for us to be holy. So, to say anything else, to doubt that is to call him a liar. Simple as that. That's not a very nice thing to do, is it, to call God a liar? How can we expect to mature in the Lord if at the time we think he's a liar? That issue has got to be settled. Now, the thing is, on this issue, if you find yourself doubting, then try, try doubting your doubts and believing your faith. You see, if, if, if you can't do anything about doubts, then, then doubt your doubts, but believe your faith. But once and for all, what is the problem with simply God speaks the truth? And his word says he wants to sanctify us. So if I genuinely invite him to say, Lord, do it, why should there be any doubt that that's what he's going to do? Settle it, once and for all. Let it no longer be an issue. That's what James says. Let this no longer be an issue. For, from the day you get converted, this should not be an issue. All right? God wants to sanctify us. No question, all right? No question. Don't doubt it. But secondly, there's the problem of, but the other way that this double-mindedness comes out is, uh, you know, is, 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 is not saying, does he want to? It's when we address ourselves with the question, do I want him to? Do I want to be dealt with? Because anything might happen to me. <laughs> you know, if I say, Lord, lay your cross on me, take me to the cross, bring me to the end of myself, I'll tell you, anything can happen. And in this fellowship, does. Doesn't it? We know it does. Now, again, we've got to settle that. Now, I put it to you in simply this way. Every one of us here have been Christians for long enough now, alright? Now then, I will say this. If you want God to deal with you, stay. If you don't, go. That's simple, isn't it? Isn't that simple? We should have decided by now, shouldn't we? If we want God to deal with us, stay. This is the right place, a church. But if you don't want God to deal, if you're playing really and you know if you are, go, because you're in the wrong place. You're bringing a cricket bat to a tennis club. You know, we're here to get dealt with, aren't we? So that's got to be settled in our mind. And it's only when these two things are, one, God wants to deal with me, no doubts, two, I want God to deal with me, no doubts. Now, I mean, all these, these stupid back doors that we keep coming up with, all our bridges should be burned behind us. Jesus said, you know, look, he, he who puts his, his hand to the plough and looks back, he's not worthy for the kingdom of God. We've got to stop looking back. Andy and I, last night, were talking about, you know, when Israel, you know, they've been set free from Egypt. They're free. They've been in bondage. They were being whipped and beaten every day, half-starved. And they're in the wilderness and they're heading to, well, they're free. And they're heading to a land of milk and honey because God's leading them. And the first time they get a bit hungry, 
they start thinking about all the cucumbers and the leeks and the garlic that, that they ate in Egypt. And they want to start going back. They've forgotten what they were delivered from. And when, when we're kind of, oh, do I really want to go the whole hog with the Lord? We've forgotten what we've been delivered from. You know, but you're free to do that. You're free to go. If you don't want God to deal with you. Can you see what James is saying here is, look, this double-mindedness must stop. You've got to sort this out once and for all because you're going to get nowhere as long as you're being double-minded. You're going to be like, you know, little, you know, like a match that's been thrown in the North Sea on a stormy day. You're going to be all over the place and you are not going to grow and you're not going to make progress. And when Christians do not grow and do not make progress, then this is where they've got to look for. They've got to ask themselves, one, do they really believe that God wants to deal with them? And then two, they've got to say, really, in their heart of hearts, not the image they project to other believers, but in their heart of hearts, do they really want to be dealt with? Because if I want to be dealt with, and if God wants to deal with me, then what's going to happen? I'm going to be dealt with. That's easy, isn't it? So if I'm not, something's gone wrong somewhere, and it hasn't gone wrong with the Lord, has it? It's entirely down to me. So, you know, decide. Stick to it. It's a decision that was actually made the day you became a Christian. Maybe it needs reaffirming. I don't know. But can you see, it's got to be, you know, that definite in our minds. Right, okay, let's just do, um, uh, move on to, to 9 to 11 now. Um, he says, let the lowly brother boast in his exhortation. He talk, talks about money now. Sorry. I didn't write it. He says, let the lowly brother, he talks a lot more about it later, this is just the intro, so fairly safe tonight. Let the lowly brother boast in his exhortation and the rich in his humiliation, because like the flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now, what, what on earth is that about? Let the lowly brother boast in his exhortation. That's the brother who's poor, hasn't got anything. You know, like the, the social, you know, the bottom of the ladder. Um, and let the rich in his humiliation. So, if you've got nothing, you boast in your exhortation. If, you've, if you're rich, you boast in your humiliation. What on earth is going on here? Well, you see, the thing is that, that when you get the poor Christian, that's the brother who is lowly. All right, the poor Christian. He must boast in his exhortation. See, the thing is, he's poor. And he hasn't got much. And he's not important in the world's eyes at all. Because it's money that talks in our society. All right? So he's got no social standing. He ain't got much at all. You know, and, and you know, sort of like, he's, he's not important as a person. Now then, that brother, a Christian in that position, he has to trust the Lord all the more for everything, doesn't he? And he's exalted because there's a million crutches that a rich person has that this guy hasn't got. Is he? So he's actually exalted. Because he's got so little in the world's eyes, he has to trust the Lord all the more. And so James says he's exalted. Let him boast in that. What a marvellous position to be in if you're in it. All right. Um, 
there are a million temptations that never touch you if you're poor. So that's a good thing, isn't it? That's a blessing. One can exalt in it. In verses 10 and 11, then he turns to rich people and he tells them that they've got to boast in their humiliation. Now, we've got to understand this. Neither James nor one single verse in the entire Bible ever says it's wrong to be rich. And it's not. Right? But, if someone is prosperous, there is an intense humiliation in it. And the humiliation is this. The rich Christian, and if God wants to make people rich, he can. No problem. I've got no problem with that. But if you are someone whom God has really prospered, then you've got everything that the world, which is sinful, counts as being valuable and important. All right? Now, the thing is, the poor brother hasn't got any of that, but the rich brother has. Now, do you remember what Robert Lee used to say about material things and, and, and sort of like money and stuff like that? He said, it's all like a game of Monopoly. And he says, it doesn't matter how many hotels you've got on Mayfair, when the Lord calls you and you die, you, 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 you turn your toes up. It all goes back in the box. Because you can't take it with you. The game's over. The game's over. All your hotels in Mayfair, back in the box. You know, that £2,000 that Jonathan owes you, because he landed on Mayfair, and still owes you it, all goes back in the box. Because the game's over, you see. Now then, the point is, when the rich brother or sister, right, they die and go to be with the Lord, everything they add that the world said, oh, you're important and you're blessed and blah, 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 it's all gone back in the box. They haven't taken it with them. The point is, they realise then they weren't anything special after all. <coughs> but the lowly brother already knew that, didn't he? Now, can you see that is why the rich are humiliated? Everything in the kingdom of God is upside down. This isn't saying that it's either right or wrong to be rich or poor. God may prosper you. God may want you to just have enough to be poor. He might want you to be poor today, rich tomorrow. I don't know, that's up to him, isn't it? But the point is, all the values are upside down in the kingdom of God. It's the poor one who's the lucky one. Because the rich one, they're not going to be humiliated when they die. Because everything that they had, that the world said, this is your importance, when they go to be... The they leave it all behind. And they were all, it was nothing after all. But then the poor person knew that, so he didn't have it. So that's, all the values are upside down in the kingdom of God, isn't it? And believe you me, there is nothing, there is nothing more pathetic, and I mean pathetic in the truest sense of the word, than people, be they Christian or non-Christian, and I've known Christians like this, who have got money and nothing wrong with that. But the fact they've got money, they think that that makes them a cut above. There is nothing more pathetic than people who think the amount of money they've got tells you something about themselves other than how much money they've got. I mean, say I lived in a lovely detached house and I had a lovely car outside. What would that tell you about me? It would tell you, I've got a nice detached house and I've got a lovely car outside. If you want to find out anything about me beyond I've got a nice house and a lovely car, 
Well, you better knock on the door and get to know me. You'll learn nothing about me from my house. You'll learn nothing about me from my car. You will only find out anything about me by getting to know me. Can you see? But people who think that the amount of money they've got is some kind of statement, that is pathetic. The Bible says it's a statement of their utter humiliation. And if they're proud of having money, then they do not realise what fools they are. And that would be the same for us. And the thing is, that the more any one of us here prospers, and God may prosper people, some people here who are more prospered than others, that's absolutely right and proper, it's down to the Lord. But what I would say is, the more God prospers you, and he may well do it if he wants to, it's up to him, but the more you prosper, the more God will have to deal with you and humble with you on that score. Can you see what I mean? The Bible nowhere hints even that it's wrong to be rich. Well, wrong to be rich if you've got your money dishonestly or something like that. But nowhere does the Bible say it's wrong to be rich. God prospers people if he wants to. But my goodness, the more you prosper, the more the Bible warns about the dangers of money. It's almost a paradox. Nothing wrong with money. But the more you've got, the more you've got to realise that it's potentially dangerous. So, there's a paradox there. But my goodness, how easy it is to trust in riches. And uh, perhaps just to wind up and back to the section we did earlier, verse 12 to, um, to 15, but just to end up there, and, you know, and to come back the place to end, where he, you know, he talks about the fact, look, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then, desire when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And that is the truth about us. Our sin is entirely ours. We cannot blame anyone else for it. Our sin is entirely ours. And it's dangerous. And the whole point of the letter of James is to show us that there is deliverance from it, that God wants to sanctify us. And he's going to deal with all the practical ways that we respond, all the ways in which we are to live in order to enable that to happen in our lives. But without fail, we, us, you, I, in our natural selves, we give birth to sin. It's as simple as that. Look, fish give birth to fish. Horses give birth to horses. People give birth to people. The new nature in Christ Jesus gives birth to holiness and godliness. But you and I, in our natural selves, we give birth to sin, because like begets like. A horse would be daft to think that it could start begetting rabbits without something fundamental happening to it biologically. Now the point is, you and I can only give birth to holiness and godliness when something happens to us fundamentally, spiritually. And what that something is, is the Lord bringing us to the end of ourselves, bringing us to death to ourselves, so that the new nature which is created after the likeness of Jesus himself, then that will produce the holiness and the godliness that James says we ought to be 
living in. Right, we will continue next time and uh, we'll be kind of a bit back to that point that I'm ending up with now. So we'll proceed first 16 onwards next time.